Welcome to Built to Play, games that technology for the arts inclined. I'm Armin Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, G4 is dead for good as the 3DS gets hacked and Apple fights free to play. But we discuss the broken games of holiday 2014. And we watch a play about social awkwardness. Plus, we revisit the Shoot Shoot Mega Pack as it tries to bring strangers together. But first, we explore video game literacy and playing video games in the library. One of the reasons that people can come together over video games is that a lot of us know how they work. And that's not just the fact that they exist. It's knowing that the right triggers to shoot your gun, or that the bottommost face button allows you to move forward in a menu. If you know these conventions, it means you're game literate. It's like with books. In the Western world, we know that the pages go left to right, and we have an idea of how story flows. Often literacy in a medium starts at an early age, and video games are no different. Maybe for you it started in the arcades, or maybe it started on your friend's N64. Either way, it was a process. You were introduced to a game and taught how to play it. But not everyone had that experience. There are a ton of people, old and young, who didn't grow up with games, or who never played games with a gamepad. And that may not be from a lack of desire to play games either. High-fidelity action games have the biggest advertising budget, so a lot of people assume that's the only kind of game around. Unless they were lucky and stumbled upon an event like Game Curious. Alright, I'm gonna stop flying the ship. I'm just gonna... Sure? I, I'm gonna try to activate the lasers. Oh, Oh, shit. You're here in Galdonado. Al's a university student at Ryerson University, attempting to play Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time. It's a game that requires teamwork, as two people fly a spaceship from one end of the galaxy to another through asteroids and enemy spacecraft. And since it's not out, Al probably wouldn't have run into this game outside of Game Curious. For that, you can thank designer Sagan Yi. She's been running this pseudo-lecture series to teach game literacy. So the the short pitch that I always give people, uh, it's even on the postcard that's in front of me right now, it's uh, sort of like a book club with buttons. It's a six-week program, and um, each session is three hours long, um, or two hours long. The first hour is sort of free play time when everybody comes in and plays all the games that we have set up. And then the second hour is group discussion. So we sit around in a sort of a semicircle and talk about the games that we just played. So the longer question is why does such a program even exist? And the broader goal is to sort of introduce people who maybe don't play a lot of games, don't identify, don't self-identify themselves as gamers and try and get them... Uh, into an environment where they feel comfortable sort of exploring the medium on their own terms. Um, and also to introduce people who to a wide variety of games that they probably never heard of. Um, and sort of, ga- gamers are allowed to come in, but we sort of ask them that if they can bring a friend who's not a gamer along. How did you get started? This is the second year running now? Yeah, this is the second version of the program, so uh, Game Curious 2.0. Okay, so what? Ha- so how did this get started the first time around? The first time we ran it, it was at the Academy of the Impossible, which is near Lansdowne and Wallace, or it was near them. They've, um, the, they're not in that building anymore. But um, the Academy of the Impossible was sort of a community arts organization, and they um, sort of were geared towards using creative mediums to. Um, help sort of underserved neighborhoods or youth at risk and stuff like that. So they had all these creative workshops. Like they had their their longest, most popular program was the uh, creative writing workshop, um, the Toronto Street Writers, and they also had sl- like slam poetry workshops and you know stuff involved with music and writing and pretty much every medium except for video games. So at some point, the founders, uh, Emily Polweary and uh, Jim Monroe, who runs the Hand-Eye Society, at some point they they got together and and sort of had this idea for a pilot program, a six-week pilot program, and they they asked me to to run it. Once they They got that I was available, we just sort of sat down and hashed out ideas of of what that program could be. And they, they pretty much let me run the whole show, which was nice. Um, but they were very supportive. Many come to Game Curious with little to no knowledge in a game's tropes. That ranges from having played a Game Boy as a kid to never having picked up a controller. Amelia Nelson and Cheryl Clark fit somewhere between these categories. 
The former is a cultural studies student, and the other works in admin at a university. But they both teamed up to play lovers in a dangerous space time. Cheryl shot down the alien hordes while Amelia steered the ship, and they felt like they made a pretty good team. I think uh, we did pretty well, actually. I think our teamwork was very good. What role do you each take when fighting off the alien hordes? See, I think I'm a little bit more comfortable using the guns, and um, Amelia is very good at, at the guns and at uh, steering the ship. <laughs> so I can run away, basically. <laughs> but what really brought them together was that Game Curious let them feel comfortable. Like, if I were to play this game with you, don't take this the wrong way, I might not have as much fun because you're already, like, really comfortable with it, and, like, I might feel like I'm holding you back, where I feel like we're both equally not as comfortable with the controllers, so we make good, a good team to try it out together. Um, and I think that's kind of what makes this whole event good, is it gives a bunch of people with different levels chances to, like, try it without worrying so much about not being good. Sagan wants games to be easy to approach, which is why she doesn't bring many popular games. You won't find Halo or Assassin's Creed here. She's looking for something simple and appealing to a diverse audience, which often means picking smaller projects. Indie titles and local content, that's sort of a a big focus of ours. We want to showcase as many um, Toronto games as possible. I usually, it's the same as last year, um, as it is this year, I try to base all the sessions around a particular theme. So the first session that we had this year was games set in Toronto or games made in Toronto or games about Toronto. And I decided to lead off with that because a lot of people are like, there's games set in Toronto? Like, that's sort of a novel idea to them because most most mainstream, really popular games are set in these sci- like really heavy sci-fi, fantastical worlds. So I wanted to bring it kind of closer to home and show the, uh, the creative range that's out there. And then some other themes that we had were um, artistic and experimental games, uh, games in science, politics, um, that sort of thing. So, what, kind, what would you say that uh, most game players kind of take for granted in terms of their background knowledge? I think controls is a big one like a keyboard has has a ton of keys on it so when you're playing a computer game you can't assume that people automatically know what keys to to push like to me it it, it makes perfect sense to have just an instruction screen um and the more polished a game is the more likely it will have those uh, helping tools instructive tools but some of the when i was going through games and saying, you know, are these good for the Game Curious program? Like, like I would pick up Assassin's Creed or Bioshock or something, and those are higher-level games and maybe not quite as appropriate for the program. I mean, it's like reading books. Like, if you're just starting out how to read, you don't hand someone a copy of James Joyce's Ulysses and be like, here you go. <laughs> go, go to it. So it's like, you know, you have to learn the alphabet first, and then, you know, form sentences and grammatical rules. And so it's, you know, it's a literacy thing. I feel like you should, probably shouldn't give Ulysses to someone even has a moderate knowledge of, of literature. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a tough one. Um, do you feel that uh, games are in any way like stigmatized as this as a media that's not quite as good as the others? Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. But it's just a matter of time. Why do you and think when... there is that stigmatism for it? Well, I, I it's funny when I was putting together this program, I asked my mom, who's from the baby boomer generation, like, why don't you play video games? Why don't you get into them? And she said, you know, it's it's not our world. Like, my generation, we just didn't grow up with them. We grew up with television. That was the huge medium. That was the big new thing. And their parents probably thought it was rotting their kids' brains as well. And it's the same sort of thing. Um but she said, you know, it's it's not something that we created and we're kind of a little bit suspicious of it because of that. And um, so it's it's just because it's so new, I think. It is, video games are quite new and, and it's still kind of a, in the pioneering stages. So that makes it all very exciting, but it also means that you get a lot of uh, misconceptions about it. But those things are sort of dropping off. Back when Grand Theft Auto first came out, there was a lot of stuff in the papers about kids, you know, becoming mass murderers because of video games and stuff like that. And nowadays, I think those headlines are slowly starting to diminish. Um, 
And I, I think it'll just continue to do so uh, as long as we keep, you know, p- having uh, having programs like Game Curious and this sort of communicating to people about about the wide range that's out there. Saying is not the only one looking to teach here either. Amala Johnson homeschools her daughter and thought games would be a great teaching tool. I'm I, I'm not I'm not there to gear what her what she's playing exactly. I think going through Game Curious and somebody lent me a book about sort of gaming and education and I started to understand that any game that she's kind of getting something out of, she's learning something, even if I don't necessarily understand what that is. She's going through the process of having to navigate um, sort of like an interactive system where she has to get clues and she has to, like there's, 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 she's learning to teach herself. So every game that she comes across that's new, she's learning something about how she learns. So to me, that's like that, you know. And then and then I kind of try and I guess like gear her towards sort of the creative aspect. So she plays Minecraft. Um, she goes on Scratch. She builds her own ana- you know animations and games. Um, she's built a lot on Game Store mechanics. So I tried to sort of like really emphasize the the sort of creating aspect rather than just the consuming aspect. Game Curious wrapped up back in October, but Sagan's looking to do it again next year. Our next focus is going to be sort of underserved neighborhoods. We're partnering with. Um, art starts on that. It's a, a community arts organization that's been around for for quite a while. Um, so they they have certain neighborhoods that they kind of um, do uh, different activities and events in. So we're going to be hooking up with with them and partnering uh, with them on that. Um, but as as for the the next game curiouses. Game curious eye. <laughs> I don't know what the plural would be. There'll be the usual six week structure, but in different neighborhoods. I'm not quite sure which neighborhoods, but that'll be over the the next couple of years. And uh, after this session, that's this Saturday, there's going to be another six weeks of the Game Curious Make sessions. So it's going to be more focused on making games and not um, so much on playing them, although there, there, there might be a little bit of playtime, but it's it's mostly for making making stuff, the, the process of making games. All right, Sagan, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Mm, thank you. Sagan Yee is a Toronto-based game designer and one of the creators of Game Curious. You can find out more about Game Curious by going to thehandeyesociety.com slash gamecurious. If you live in Toronto and want to join in, Sagan has a new session running at the Reference Library every Saturday until December 2nd. You'll find more in our show notes. But, so long as we're talking about ways people learned about games, it's probably time to remember G4. G4 was a television channel that aired mostly games-related content, including... X-Play and Reviews on the Run. The channel launched in 2002 and survived until 2012. That's when owners NBC Universal announced they were replacing it with the Esquire Network. Which didn't happen. Flash forward two years and somehow G4 is still on the air. But it hasn't had original programming in two years. But not for long. As new owners Comcast have announced what we all knew, G4 is dead. I actually found this out a few months ago when I ended up on the channel drunk and thought I had time traveled back to before the Wii U launch. It was really weird and kind of upsetting. It's it, you kind of caught a channel where it was on all reruns. It was and... on. It was an old episode of X Play from the eve of the Wii U launch, which I believe was like their last week of shows. Oh my god, the um, X Play. I that game that show was a lot of things, but it was probably their longest running show. It mm-hmm. was. Uh, it starred Adam Sessler, Morgan Webb, yep. and they reviewed games and then sometimes had segments about other things. It's... Right. I. I'm not sure about the general quality of that, as it was. I never really watched X-Play. Um, they had a... It, it kind of varied. At one point, G4 wanted to be, like, a man's comedy network. So yeah. There was a lot of, like, comedy segments on X-Play that were varying level of quality, including um, ones just that were very vulgar about two people who played... Uh, two people who played Splinter Cell uh, Chaos Theory together and hated each other. Um, oh, she- so control the lead. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There's my uh, web comics of 2009 burn. Um, the So I, I was actually wondering, A, I mean, I think X-Play, while I didn't really watch it, I feel like it was relatively important. Yeah. It, um, was, it, was, before, it was kind of like web content before there was a web to put it on. Like, yeah. The, it was before that having – it was really hard to get uh, trailers. It was really hard to get 
any kind of video reviews because bandwidth costs were so high. Mm-hmm. So, hey, if you needed, like, if you wanted to see that trailer, they had a whole show that was just, like, right. trailers. If you wanted to see a video review or uh, a review that was interlaced with actual uh, gameplay, mm-hmm. X-Play was a place to see it. And For you... about four years, maybe three uh, years until 2005 and the 1UP show kind of became a thing. Yeah, when the 1UP show became a thing, GameSpot got their own on the spot and it was it finally became, there was a bunch of live shows that started up on game websites. I think mm-hmm. IGN had something. Yeah. The... It just it stopped being unique and it stopped really having a place within uh, the medium the discourse as a whole mm-hmm. and kind of just became for a while there until they kind of revamped it as a more serious show it kind of became the clown of the group um, and because they also had because the other shows they aired with stuff like reviews on the run and Attack yeah. of the Show which is sort of a more traditional talk show yeah Attack of the Show was basically like it was a Spike TV style yeah. uh, talk show that happened to talk about games a lot uh, you'd also hear like whatever nerd-related movies were on discussion. Chris Hardwick on that? Chris Hardwick probably had a few episodes on there. Um, He, I mean, it was... I think, actually, no, the primary hosts were Olivia Munn and Kevin Pereira. Yeah, and then uh, before that, it was Kevin Rose, uh, who Mm -hmm. later went on to found Dig. Uh, It's, that show was previously then uh, Screensavers as part of Tech TV, uh, Mm -hmm. which was run by Leo Laporte, who now runs his own podcasting network. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, G4, to say at least... The people who have been on it, and the people who uh, the people who were on it, and the people who kind of worked with that format, uh, had a big impact on the industry. Mm-hmm. I just it, they kind of just ran their course, and mm-hmm. they well, stopped they've all having sort a place of gone like... up to executive heaven, as it was. A lot of those people. I mean, Olivia Munn now does traditional acting. I think. Yeah, she part. she's in the newsroom. She's in a few movies, um, and I believe Kevin Pereira just does comedy now. Yeah, uh, but otherwise, everybody's sort of like you know. Adam Sessler is doing, I think, like, what is he, like an analyst now? He's an analyst, and I think for a while he was doing video reviews for uh, Revision 3 games. Yes, he was. On YouTube. If we're going to talk about anything to G4, I think, like, Sessler was the biggest component. Yeah. Just because he was the guy who carried that network. He was he was the most serious face. I mean, like, while he was easy eager to, make a, to sh- show himself as a doof, mm-hmm. uh, Sessler was probably the... Uh, the guy who was there, who knew the most about games, who knew most about the industry, was the most willing to talk about serious issues, um, and was most willing to critique companies. Uh, Sessler would like, even though for a while they did it just by like kind of vulgar comedy. Towards the end, his rants got fairly sophisticated, and when mm-hmm. it carried on to Revision Three, I feel like they actually had some weight, uh, which allowed him to then transition into his role as an analyst. Yeah. Uh, in any case, the, ch- the channel is finally being put to rest on November 30th, so if you really need to catch any more <laughs> reruns of X-Play from two years ago, you have two weeks to get on it. Uh, G4 actually won't be replaced by X-Wire or anything, for that matter. It will be dead air. Which, I mean... What happened, I think, was they decided they wanted. They picked up a different state. It was they picked, a style. They picked network. style, yeah, yeah, because they figured they have too many stuff aimed at women and not enough stuff aimed at men. Yeah. Well, whatever. Whatever. The, um, G four was a G four became a very bad channel for, yes. for after a while. It was attack of a show barely resembled a game show and just kind of became. Uh, like a, a really base level, just uh, sort of a way to get Olivia Munn to like yeah. wrestle in water or something. That's yeah. happened a lot on that show, if I remember correctly. They they had a, their own like sex talk section. G four had it had its good moments. Especially when I was in high school, I had a lot of time over the summer. But after that, I mean, it just didn't have really a place. Yep. Well, speaking of things that don't have a place uh, and are very confusing and strange. Uh, earlier this month, a French hacker named jo- Jordan Rabay cracked the 3DS piracy, piracy protection software in an effort to get homebrew games running on the system. And how did he do it? Well, he got it through an obscure 2011 Ubisoft game called Cubic Ninja. The exploit will be made on made public on the 22nd by Rabay, and it actually works a lot like the homebrew hacking did on the Wii, except instead of a copy of Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, you'll need a copy of Cubic Ninja, an SD card, and an internet connection. The hack lets you homebrew titles but not play copies of small uh, of retail uh, 3DS games. This isn't necessarily a huge thing. People have been trying and succeeding to crack the 3 since launch, the difference is that cracks have always been in the launch era firmware. Uh, Robert's hacks supposedly work on any up-to-date 3DS. Uh, even though the hack isn't available yet, prices of, again, <laughs> obscure, unknown 2011 3DS launch game Cubic Ninja have skyrocketed overnight. Earlier this week, Cubic Ninja was going for $3 on eBay, with copies now hitting up to $300. Amazon resellers have also jacked up the price, selling it from anywhere from $40 to $500. It's... 
Yeah, I mean, Nintendo has since removed Cubic Ninja from the eShop because I feel like that's probably in their best interest. Um, I, I, I like the idea that this game might just be completely erased from history now. I, I want to know how he got to that game of all games. Like, he must have identified the... the um, he had to identify, like, the weakness in the firmware somehow, and this game had to do it. Like, did he just happen to have this game on hand? How is this the only game? What is wrong with this game? I have to imagine that there's a common kind of coding practice that exists in a lot of games that were from that time, or at least mm-hmm. from a select group, that would enable that would enable a game to be played on the system. Mm-hmm. I have to assume that 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 he wasn't going through every single game that ever came out. But here's the thing, though, because you'd have to imagine then why not have because plenty of launch era games from that time were things like Ocarina of Time 3D and Star Fox 64 3D, which are games that presumably most, if not all, 3DS owners already have. Yeah, but I have to I have to guess that this one was probably poorly done. There has to be some. Yeah. I mean, Cubic Ninja was was barely. I I doubt These, it made well, a dent. The studio who the studio who developed it uh, went bankrupt in 2011, right after the game came out. So presumably, this is not getting patched. Yeah, yeah. So there was probably some kind of bad thing. The code that allows allows you to get th- to to well, get through and activate. The thing with the 3DS with the with the with the Wii with Twilight Princess was that there was a save data glitch, right? Which was the big weakness that allowed you to kind of act, well, during that glitch process, you were able to just get into the Wii. Right, right. Um, this I imagine Nintendo's gotten a lot smarter, which is why none of their first party games have managed to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, it would also explain. I mean, and the vast majority of the big popular games on the 3DS are first party or mm-hmm. are related to Nintendo or are very like are big games mm-hmm. that would presumably go through an extensive QA process. I can imagine Cubic Ninja being kind of just shunted off early on in the cycle when Nintendo just saying, hey, everyone get out of game. Nintendo, after the DS happened, Nintendo got really, really uh, shaky on piracy stuff and has gotten really trigger happy on patching the 3DS whenever they can. Presumably, the running a homebrew games would also allow it to run pirated games. Right, but he says that this hack does not let you do that for whatever reason. Now, does that mean that somebody could not modify his hack to allow that? Uh, probably not. Hackers are kind of like that. Um, I I would be land? interested in running emulators on my 3DS. Yeah. Nintendo doesn't want to sell me Super Nintendo games. That would be nice. I mean, I, I'm sure the 3DS is capable of running a lot of those early 3DS uh, early uh, Super Nintendo games. Almost certainly, if yeah. it can run, if it can run Ocarina of Time, it can probably run Super Metroid. So long as we're talking about things that are slightly busted, uh, we might as well talk about things that are completely broken. Yeah. It turns out that uh, if you've bought a game in the last three months, chances are you may have picked up a game. That is completely and absolutely broken. Yeah, so for a variety of reasons, this has been among the most broken, glitched out, utterly non-functional holiday crop of games in recent memory. Just a quick list of games that have not been working at launch release in the past couple of weeks. We have Far Cry 4, Assassin's Creed Unity, Drive Club, Halo the Master Chief Collection, and Sonic Boom. Most, if not all, are receiving patches to fix their issues, but let's roll down each game's problems one by one before we even start talking about what went wrong sonic boom is a glitch ridden sorry sonic boom is glitch ridden has event flags that do not only that do not only not trigger they sometimes de-trigger themselves and will and will take away items they gave you in cutscenes. uh and is an overall poorly put together pile of trash so as our resident sonic boom expert um (laughs) (laughs) i played sonic boom for 30 minutes two weeks ago and i can't wait until it's five dollars at (laughs) eba because this site will be flooded with sonic boom coverage (laughs) Yeah, this, I, I dread the day. So the um the, the next game on that list we have is Halo: The Master Chief Collection, which actually, I mean, for the most part, if you just played a single player, you probably won't see most of these glitches. But but if you're playing Halo, you're probably not just playing a single player. <laughs> yeah, no, you're here for the matchmaking system, which um had people waiting for upwards of like hours, six hours, yeah, yeah. six hours before it just kicks you out and says, "Eh, try again." So this game, uh, which is most popular for its multiplayer section, playing together either in rooms, but most likely online, um, has not had a proper matchmaking section since launch, and have they been trying to fix it for weeks now? Yeah, they are, well, for two weeks, I think, now. Yeah. And they are, they're still trying. Microsoft says they're almost there, but um, doesn't... There's... What was it? They, they recently put up a thing that said they're like 12... That they're going to have an update in which things will be 20% improved. Yes. Whatever that means. 20%. So six hours. That's 20% of six hours. Just let's do... I know we're journalists. We can't do math. But let's <laughs> pretend for a second. I believe 20% of six hours. That is what? Six hours, 60 minutes times six. 360 minutes. <laughs> sure. 10% of that, 36. 20% of that, 72. 72 less minutes. That is an hour and 12 minutes. You will only have to wait 
four hours and 48 minutes. <laughs> I did all that in my head. Apparently, one of the pieces of advice that have been thrown out there is like, hey, if you see like a code appear in the top left corner, if it's this code as opposed to another code, um, <laughs> it means that you have a better chance of getting a, a match complete, which might be like the idea that you then have to like we played that bomb defusal game a yeah. while back. The idea that you have to treat Halo as if like a series of mythological signs in which you have to solve in order to have a good experience. Playing Halo the Master Chief Collection is much like going on a vision quest. <laughs> in what ways? Um, there's a lot of peyote involved. You will definitely <laughs> climb a mesa and you will speak to the coyote in the, the, coyote in the stars. Speaking of the coyote uh, and racist stereotypes, the... Far Cry 4 seems to have its own batch of issues. Yes, it crashes regularly on PC going to black screen, and the PS3 version occasionally gives a message saying your save data is corrupt and you have to delete your Far Cry 3 data. However, people are getting this message without having ever played Far Cry 3, so go figure that one out. I believe the PS3 one is being patched this week. The PC one, tough luck. Uh, part of this stuff has a, might have something to do with the, the new PS4's... Um, the, the PS4s and the PS3s new firmware update, which seems mm-hmm. to have caused a lot of problems across the board. But uh, the biggest issues were on the PS4, so I guess it remains to be seen whether this has actually had any effect on um, Far Cry 4. Yep. But a game that has been t- totally busted and the that firmware update didn't help at all was Drive Club, or alternatively, Hashtag Drive Club. Remember, the first rule of Hashtag Drive Club is we don't talk about the hashtag. Also, uh, we don't fa- talk about the fact that it was released two months ago and still doesn't work. <laughs> Two months ago, Daniel. I I feel it's really bad for anybody who bought that game. I feel so bad for anybody who bought that game because it does not... This is a game, much like Hail of the Master Chief Collection, almost entirely built around its multiplayer aspects. Unlike Hail of the Master Chief Collection, it doesn't have an extensive single-player campaign to back it up. It is almost entirely online modes that literally do not work. I mean, the thing about the Halo Master Chief Collection is that to some extent, like, look, this was a game that, this is just kind of a nice thing to have if you're a Halo fan. Mm -hmm. It's all the games, new graphics, uh, new graphics, one package, $40. You know, it's just a decent thing to have. It kind of sucks that Microsoft screwed up that bad. I think it's actually $60. $60. It kind of sucks that Microsoft screwed up that bad. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like... It's going to be there eventually. Yeah. Drive Club literally does not have the reason you bought it, the reason you chose this game over not waiting for, say, um, Gran Turismo. Gran Turismo, The Crew. Any of these games. It does not have... Hashtag it, Drive Avatar. <laughs> it does not have the reason you would want to play it available. Um, also, the free version, which came, Which was promised to PS Plus users, uh, has been indefinitely delayed and basically canceled because they've given up. You get free DLC, they've yet to patch it. And of course... Uh, we have the Bell of the Broken Ball, Assassin's Creed Unity, which has so many glitches, Ubisoft put together a handy 900-word list. Yeah, yeah, um, which include amazing things like characters falling through the worlds, faces not loading, uh, <laughs> uh, game crashes, frame rate problems, collision issues, and my personal favorite one, are not only falling through the ground, Arno, the protagonist, falling through the ground into the molten core of the glitchy earth forever <laughs> until you reload your game. There uh, are times sometimes where it renders crowds, and the and ca- characters in this crowd will be standing on top of each other. <laughs> so sometimes characters just sort of melt and lose bone structure, and they sort of look like the friend in a box from Omac. <laughs> Assassin's Creed Unity is probably the poster child for glitchy games that probably shouldn't have come out. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you, one has to assume Ubisoft refused to delay Assassin's Creed, which they knew had problems. Right, because they did not let reviewers publish their reviews until 12 hours after launch, because they were trying to get as many sales in under the shitty, shitty wire. Uh, try Sorry. Again. They were trying to get as many sales under the awful, awful wire. Yeah, so when it comes to this bloody thing, it seems like they were willfully trying to like dissuade the public mm-hmm. from thinking this is a bad game. Uh, it may have something to do with the fact that it's a yearly launch cycle, but honestly, Ubisoft, like, just get over yourself. Sure. This should well, not have happened. So, like you said, most of these things are getting patched. Um, no Except- one's ever going to patch Sonic Boom, because of course not. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why? <laughs> um, but the, the thing with not giving out review copies or not having modes put into review copies is really strange. Drive Club didn't have its online stuff um, patched until the game came out. I mean, the shocking thing was that apparently it worked. Like, it was pretty yeah. decent for reviewers, which is why most of the reviews came up and said, like, you know, this game's not that fun, but I mean... It's okay, yeah. but then they couldn't handle the server strain, yeah. or at least Sony says their server bugs prevented from working. Assassin's Creed Unity, 
didn't work and also was patched after the embargo yeah. to include uh, microtransactions. Uh, Sonic Boom did not even go to reviewers. <laughs> like, people had to buy that for themselves. Yeah. Um, what is happening here? So, I mean, one of the reasons that could come up here is that a lot of these games are things that are on a very regular cycle. Right. Assassin's Creed in particular, right? So, uh, what I think the general gist is that these games were rushed. When it comes to Assassin's Creed, what they do is they kind of, they have two teams who work on various Assassin's Creed games. So we have the team that works on two years from now and the team who works on next year's. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a result, they always seem to have like that delay where one game's improvements comes two games down the line instead of in the next yeah. game. They just do not have the time to make any general shifts. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems the target for Assassin's Creed was having an extremely high-fidelity game, mm-hmm. something with ma- really good graphics. And apparently, if you don't move <laughs> and don't try to interact with the game at all, um, it's fine. Like, the game in looks beautiful. Yeah, in stills, it's gorgeous. When it moves, it's a clip show. Yeah, yeah. So, as a result, it feels like what happened was they made this and then didn't have time to optimize it. They figured, hey, look, we can optimize this in a patch. Worst mm-hmm. comes to worst. And maybe, and this is just a theory, right? Maybe that on the day on the day it came out, there'd be this big patch. Reviewers would have 12 hours to look through it. Oh, here's the patch. Once once the 12 hours were done, no harm, no big harm. Game's mm-hmm. out. Everything's fixed. That did not happen. They overestimated the t- what the guess is then they overestimated their the ability am- to fix the game within the allotted time frame. I think they may have also overestimated the amount of problems there are because they're yeah. still running they said they're still running frame rate tests. They have no idea what's causing the frame rate issues. It isn't the crowd rendering. Yeah. They've tried getting rid of the crowds and the frame rate's still awful. And the thing is, I mean, frame rate is going to be the hardest thing to fix. You're not mm-hmm. going to fix the frame rate. And apparently the frame rate is so bad that you're lucky to get it at running at 20 frames a second and the PC version is worse. Like, it is, it can't, it's not even locked to 30 frames, which is what you expect of a game that is having frame rate issues. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it, and it seems also run worse in cutscenes, mm-hmm. which is, anyway. The, there is a possibility, like you said, that it's, a, that it's a yearly thing. It's a rush to the holiday season. Yeah. But is this a pro- possible that it is a next-gen thing? That people are just not ready to producing these, the amount of next-gen games that they're trying to produce? Ubisoft has four next-gen games this year. Altogether, Watch Dogs, Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, and the and the crew, three of which were busted, and one of which hasn't come out. Yeah, which I mean, I'm I'm excited to see what that looks like. Um, the thing with the thing with these games, I feel like it's bec- I don't think it's a matter of the next generation because we had ten years between the PS3 and the PS4, between the Xbox 360 and um, the Xbox One. So it's. It's not like they haven't had time to mess with the technology. Not with not the same extent to maybe they have mastered the PS3 and Xbox 360 now. But it's not like they they haven't had that experience. I feel like what's happening here is that the deadlines are getting shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. The budgets are getting higher, but as a, but they don't have time to optimize it. And because mm-hmm. of that, there's that gap between. Making a game gold, meaning that they put it on yeah. the disc and all the features are final, and then the anticipated time between it gets uh, from that to the player's hands. And the idea is, hey, look, we can we have this time frame that allows us to extend the deadline somewhat, and by incorporate that into the development time, you risk then having these things where it's like, oh, don't worry, if there's these issues with QA, we can just fix them in post. And I think that attitude in general is terrible. I mean, that's the attitude that actually killed Final Fantasy XIV, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That they, had, they, they said, ah, if there's a problem, we'll fix it later. That is a bad attitude. It's a scary one because the idea of like, hey, don't worry. Most games get their biggest, get their, get their biggest amount of money in the first week or so after yeah. launch. So if that game isn't working on that first week, you're kind of messed up. Mm-hmm. You're... Triple A games are literally broken. Yeah. <laughs> literally, literally broken. Once again, our current theme at Built to Play is about friends and enemies. We're talking about the ways video games can bring us closer together, often literally. Which is why today we're going to be talking about a play, Coffee, A Misunderstanding. Typical straight white guys with their spleening. What do you mean? What did I do? You think that just because you follow me on Twitter that uh, all of a sudden makes us best friends or something? I don't even know you. There's a word for this kind of behavior. It's called... 
Coffee is a live performance that's about the awkwardness of social interaction. Two people are stuck together at a convention where one person knows far more about the other. One follows the other on Twitter and has no idea how to keep their mouth shut. Although, neither of the actors choose how they respond. Someone else is quickly picking their lines. It's basically a play with audience participation. I get volunteers to come up, um, and uh, so two people play as the puppets. They read lines off of um, an, a mobile device and wear wigs and act out the role of the characters, and uh, two roles called uh, the drivers who select um, options uh, in real time as they come up. So it's kind of like a multiplayer choose-your-own-adventure, um, like Bioware dialogue kind of, uh, kind of game thing going on. And and then the audience watches this uh, thing happen the whole time. Deirdre Kiai, better known as Squinky Online, is the creator of Coffee and brought the performance to the Wordplay Festival in Toronto. There, there. Squinky talked to us about social awkwardness and merging plays and games. Whatever I'm doing at a certain point influences what uh, what I might in- insert into my own work. So, like, lately I've been um, hanging around a lot of, I guess, musicians and performance artists and um, actually um, a friend of mine had this performance that she did with have, giving everyone earpieces and giving commands through them and I guess more and like doing a non-interactive like, play but still this very art audience participation thing that uh, that really inspired me it's like how do you get people to do musical theater if they don't have a background in it and uh, it had these really interesting results um, so I wanted to bring my kind of choice-based narrative um, game design skills um, into a performance environment for that reason. Plus also just, um, I've, I've always, in like, um, I enjoy the idea of creating something that you have to be present to experience. Everything else I've made until now has been kind of like, I release it online. I don't see people interacting with it firsthand, except in like, uh, exceptional circumstances. Just being able to like gather an audience and have people experience the work while I am there to witness it. It's um, like performing music it, for an audience or acting for an audience or just or like giving a speech. It's this very immediate feedback and not internet mediated for once kind of interaction. It makes the, the interaction between both the creator, the players and the audience very, very direct. Everyone is in the room. And I, I'd say it also kind of like um, fosters its own mini community. I'm really interested in community building and 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 just ways that we can come together and uh, like through play and stuff. I bet some people out there are wondering why we're talking about a play. But is a play really all that different from a game? Like video games, they require a script. In a video game, that script happens to be lines of code and a set of rules. More importantly, plays and games are incomplete without live actors or players. A play is just a script without anyone on stage. And without players, a game is just a bundle of data or a list of rules. It's not much of a game without someone to play it. Think about it this way. In a game like Shadow of Mordor or Call of Duty, you have a list of objectives to complete. Sometimes they're personal and sometimes they're given to you by the game. You may die, take detours, or goof around, but so long as you're playing the game with the intent to reach your goal, you are performing within the game's script. Which is why having a performer, a driver, and a director can make for an interesting performance. Especially as each participant balances what happens and how it's interpreted. How much do you think it's reliant on trust between, that, between the, the driver and the performer? Um, um, I see it as like a form of a player avatar relationship. Um, uh, so like, uh, I don't call either, um, I try not to call either of them the player because, um, which one is the player? Is the player the one making decisions or the, is the player the one, um, enacting the decisions? I guess in most digital games, you would have like the player, um, make, con- like work in the controls and the player character enacting the controls. It's like, but what if both of them are humans? This is really interesting. And so like since they're both humans and they both have agency and that there are since there are two characters there are two puppets and two drivers so there are two avatars and two i guess like players in the sense but the, but they're all players and so seeing all of those roles interact with one another is really fascinating and uh, i don't know it feels like 
Um, my rationale in deciding in designing it where it, like that was like, I want to know what happens if I decouple these things. How does it change? Sometimes the drivers get a little bit bored if they don't have a, a lot of actions at a, at a time. And people ask me um, about adding more things for people to do. But then like, sometimes I'm like, actually, this is kind of this is kind of a good thing. Not necessarily playing to people's expectations, making them sort of like wait and see a little bit. Um, and just and as well with the puppets, like, yeah, of course, you are free to interpret things however you'd like. You can uh, you can ad lib if you feel like it. Um, as an author, I'm relinquishing some control. So I guess I wouldn't say there's a wrong way to play the game. So it's, it's just very fascinating. Ultimately, what kind of relationship are you trying to build between the two of the driver and the puppet? Hmm. Like I said, um, I'm not entirely sure. I'm, uh, I, I kind of want to just see what happens in a lot of ways. Um, Sometimes, like, if they're already I'm, friends with each other, they can, like, kind of play off each other that way. But usually what I see is, like, um, people who know each other either both being puppets or both being drivers. And I've seen things like the two drivers trying to collaborate with each other to get the romance ending or whatever. <laughs> um, or the two puppets, like, see, maybe there'll be like a couple who's dating in real life and then um, kind of like swap the roles that they normally play. And, and like, and sometimes the chemistry that comes out of that is really cute and endearing and funny, especially if they get a bad ending. Have you had any, any performances that you've particularly enjoyed that you found memorable? Hmm. There, there's definitely been a handful of them so far. Um, uh, when I uh, ran this game at the Queerness in Games conference, that was like kind of the, uh, the the venue where people seemed to really relate to the actual text. Um, I mean, like uh, both the like the story and uh, and the characters, like because like a lot of people had gone through similar situations, and that was really gratifying for me to like find people who really got it. And I mean, like I've just had some really funny things happen sometimes like uh like the very first time i ran a performance somebody like kind of as an ad lib uh, decided to like uh there's a part um talking about like their legs and how and how beautiful they were and so like uh pulling up pulling up legs and uh, and then the other puppet has this like funny look on their face and then but it was just really hilarious and awkward um one thing i really really love in general is when uh, the puppets actually start laughing while they're on stage because usually when you're acting you don't normally do that like you don't start laughing at the line you are going to say that is like bad form and improv um but here it just makes a lot of sense like people laughing nervously that is a thing that that happens and it's a thing that like like um, fits very well with the situation. Like sometimes, like somebody will just start laughing, and and then the audience will start laughing, and it's kind of infectious. And and I find moments like that really beautiful. Deirdre Squinky Kiai is an artist and writer currently working on their MFA at UC Santa Cruz. Go banana slugs! All their work is available at squinky.me. In our last story this week, we catch up with friend of the show, John Remedios. John has been working on his game anthology, the Shoot Shoot Mega Pack. We first caught up with him back in May, talking about what he enjoyed about local multiplayer games. It's very much a game for, like, me as a kid, I guess. Um, and just, you know, hanging out with buds, playing a game. And, um, I don't know, I kind of really wanted to recapture that sort of, that closeness that you can kind of get when you're interacting with other people. The game's grown a lot since then. He started with one game, Sync, and has since added two more to the roster. These new games have given him perspective on Sync and where the appeal of local multiplayer lies. Remedios tells us about how things have changed and where he hopes to go with the Shoot Shoot Mega Pack. When I last talked to you, you just had Sync done. You had an idea of how the game was going to go from there on in. Has it stayed to what your basic idea has been? Absolutely not. No, it. I mean, it is still a collection of local multiplayer shooters. Uh, it's still a party game. The game modes that I have currently, so I'm currently showing three, uh, Sync, a game called Zoom, and a game called Fade, 
they were not even in the back of my mind when uh, last time we talked a bit bizarre. Um, I, I've tried a number, I prototyped a number of other game modes and, and just threw them out. Um, so it's, you know, it's cool that I, I finally landed on these three for now. A fourth one will be coming soon, hopefully. And, and that people are playing it and they're digging it and, and they get it. So I, I appreciate that. What was it about the the ideas that you threw out that just that made them unworthy of the pack? Um, they were bad. <laughs> they they were just bad. So the thing that uh, sort of goes without saying. No, it, okay, no, I do not say it. It doesn't go without saying. Uh, is that each game the core mechanic? While it's also novel, like in Sync, if you thrust, everybody thrusts. Uh, it's also always player driven. So in Fade, for example, everyone's invisible, but when you shoot. Uh, the person who shoots is made slightly... They're made very visible, and everyone else is made slightly visible. So, I mean, if, if nobody is putting an input into the game, the game, nothing happens. Uh, the same thing with Zoom. Whenever you shoot, the level gets smaller. So, um, again, if, if it's not like the level's constantly getting smaller and you have to, like, run toward the center and try and push each other out. It's all up to the people involved. And I think that's... I mean, that's what I want from a good party game. I want a... I want to be connected to what's happening on the screen and I want all my friends involved to also be connected to it um, and so the, uh, some of the other modes that I had were just like there was like one that had a big like a big ball that would chase you around and it was sort of like tag where you'd shoot another person and then it, the ball would chase that person instead and if you shot the ball it would move really really fast and chase after you and it was fine like it was a fine game it just felt dissonant so I, I'm trying really hard to make sure that all four games are are consistent and like I, I want them to be a cohesive whole because otherwise it just, it just felt weird to me. I don't want that. So when you say that sync is the the weaker ones, uh, one of the weaker ones now, um, what makes it kind of less impactful than the others? It's it's interesting because it's novel. But once that novelty wears off um, and you have everyone moving and shooting at the same time, you have limited options, right? Like the only choice you can ever make at any given point is thrust which could be th thrust or shoot which anyone can do so it's in some circumstances in a lot of circumstances that's not even a choice um, so the only real choice you have is like choice that is only yours is rotating and that only you can only do so much with that so I mean I'm I'm playing around with a number of ways that I can add a bit more depth to it that don't limit accessibility and so has your kind of process of figuring out what works and what does it changed over the course of working with the game? I, I appreciate that you think I have a process. Yeah, it has. I've been playtesting a lot more frequently. When I was first um, developing all, all these modes, I would prototype it in about a week, like a week to two weeks. I'd prototype it in a week and then polish it up in another week because depending on who you're playing with, having a certain amount of polish will affect their, their enjoyment of the game. But I, I was making all these games in such quick succession that I wasn't holding playtests and seeing if it was... I was just like, do I like this one? Do I not like this one? And so I came up with, like, six prototypes or something. like I don't know. Some that's, I, That may be a lie. It might have only been, like, four or five or six. I don't know. Something. And, and then I just started testing them all in different configurations and seeing which ones I liked, which ones I didn't. Like, a lot of it's just been feel and, and watching people play it and see their reactions. But it's not... Like, I, I, it's not streamlined at all. It's kind of... I'm... I have no idea what I'm doing. I just I'm hoping hoping for the best, and then you know, I, eventually I'm gonna have to get to a fourth game, and I don't know how I'm gonna do that because everything I have in my my back pocket right now is garbage. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Ask maybe ask me again in like another four months or something, and I'll be able to tell you. But I couldn't tell you now. Is this still? Um, do you still have a full time job while making this game? Yeah, I do. I uh, I've been a little bit more disciplined about working on this project just because it's been people have been liking it and I you know as much as I mean at this point I hate this game of course uh, I just look at it every day and I'm, I'm tired I'm only work on it when I'm tired because I've worked a full day but um, people have been liking it so that's really great uh, for, to like push me forward and be like oh okay yeah maybe I'm doing an okay thing that's been crazy because I work I work full time and then I go to a coffee shop and I work on it for another like three hours and then I go home and I try not to work on it but sometimes I still do has it been difficult to kind of set up a work-life balance for yourself? I don't. I don't think so. I oh, I think it's pretty balanced, right? I have a I have a partner and like a, and we live together, so she helps. Real she helps me a lot. Uh, 
to just just because she'll look at me and be like, "You look tired." And I, I try really. We don't get to spend a lot of time together because she she works during the evening, so we're both home pretty late, and we only get like one or two hours. So, I, what else am I going to do with my time if I'm not spending it with her at home? Uh, I maybe I'll do some work at a coffee shop instead, and that that's fulfilling for me. Uh, and then when she does come home, we make a really concerted effort to actually be able to spend time. I don't see some of my friends as much as I'd like to. I don't see my family very often, but it's, you know, I, th- this is an important to me now. I need to, I need to do this for myself. So I don't, I'm, I'm tired a lot, but it doesn't, I like it, I guess. If I had like anything else, like more stuff in my real life right now that I were like really strong obligations, it would be very difficult. I'm just at a place where I can afford to do this. I have enough energy and time. When you start, when you started the game, there were there were a couple of multi multiplayer, and now it seems to really have blossomed. How do you kind of feel that your game places within the whole um, kind of blossoming genre? I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that question. Um, it, it seems to just be really popular now. It's just the way of like introducing people to games, the way of playing games. Where do you think the, this genre has kind of spawned from? Um, I I mean I think it's a couple things. One gamer camp. And, and events like Gamer Camp are kind of weird because this is not how most people play video games, right? They don't play games around a bunch of other people in a festival setting. Local multiplayer games show really well in festivals. So I think, I think there's a bit of a sample bias when you go to places like this. Because, I mean, local multiplayer games aren't most video games. I, I also think that, um, you know, there's a bit of nostalgia. Like, we're we're all not all of us but like some of us are I'm in my mid-20s some people are like in their mid-20s between mid-20s mid-30s and and we're all like growing up and have real jobs or whatever and we miss our friends so this is like a good way this is a honestly this is an excuse for me to get my friends together once a week and be like hey guys do you want to play this video game with me um I I don't know it's I I don't think that I think it it makes a lot of sense to me I I don't know if it's necessarily going to be sustainable for the number of games that are coming out now that are being local multiplayer without also having some sort of single-player content. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe all that's going to happen is we're going to have more video game parties. Um, all right. I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you. John Remedios is a game designer based in Toronto and treasurer of the local IGDA. This interview was recorded at the Gamer Camp Festival earlier this year. You can find more of John's work at johnremedios.com. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Al Donato. Sagan Yee. Cheryl Clark. Amelia Nelson. Amala Johnson. And John Remedios. For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. We're usually on the air at the Scope Ryerson at 1 p.m. with a new episode on Saturday. We've already started our newest theme, all about playing games with other people. We have a primer up on the site. This week, you can read about the intimacy of screen sharing. Unrelated, but there's also a deep dive into the nature of repetition in Bravely Default on the site, so make sure to follow us on Twitter at built to play And me personally, at Flarkon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And remember, Chie is best girl. Thank you so much for listening. Listening.